let's be very frank. There's a lot of elements about the strategy where, you know, you have a lot of police partners who don't really feel that this community component is critical or the solution to stopping gun violence. You have a lot of community members who are not willing to work side by side with police and we have to respect their opinion. You know, we have to respect both sides of the component. But ultimately, I think to do this work, you have to have a level of enthusiasm. I do know that for this strategy, a lot of people come in and be a bit more pessimistic about it. So it requires me to help reel them in. But I do think that we need more individuals to be a part of this who are enthusiastic about the work because trying to combat gun violence or trying to save lives requires a lot of energy, requires a lot of attention to detail and just commitment. And I think we definitely could use a lot more of it. Hi, I'm Erica Atwood, a Camden-grown, Philly-zone, problem-solver, troublemaker, side-eye expert, and proud Black auntie. I've spent my career at the nexus of government, philanthropy, and community pushing the boundaries of race and equity issues. I Know Your Name podcast will focus on introducing you to some great people in my network, dedicating their life's work to reducing gun violence and reforming the criminal justice system. We'll talk about who they are, outline the problems we are all facing, uplift real solutions, and let you know how you can plug in. It is human nature to want to be accepted and have a place where you belong. But when belonging begets violence, who helps you find another way? In this episode, we talked to Dion Sumter, Program Coordinator for the Group Violence Intervention Program in Philadelphia. We talk about the components of the program and how, if you're caught up in the game, you can get out. So Dion Sumter, I know your name. Why should other people know you? First, thank you so much for having me. My name is Dion Sumter. I am the current Group Violence Intervention Project Manager for one of the city's latest and recent strategies to help combat gun violence within the city of Philadelphia. I'm definitely participating in a unique strategy to really combat this current crisis of gun violence within the city. So tell us a little bit about what the Group Violence Intervention Program is. What does GVI do? GVI is a very unique strategy that consists of working closely with several city departments, several community members to really be able to make GVI work. GVI is a strategy that engages a group of individuals who are associated with groups that are driving gun violence. Obviously within the city of Philadelphia, I'm from Germantown. We don't have the typical Bloods, Crips, Latin Kings. What we have in the city of Philadelphia are young brothers and sisters who are associated with a social network. Yeah. It could be a particular intersection that's named after your group, or it could be a community part of a particular network who are in direct conflict with another network. So that's where it comes across the lines of group-related violence. So what we do within GVI is we really go out and we identify these individuals who are a part of these networks. And obviously, we're very careful with not categorizing them as gangs, because once you say they're a gang, there's legal ramifications with that. But a lot of these are individuals who are part of a group. Our police partners identify these individuals, and we conduct a very thorough, robust vetting process. And this process allows us to be able to gather enough information on this young person who is believed to be associated with this group. And from there, we meet with the Philadelphia Police Department, the District Attorney's Office, Delt Juvenile Probation, Parole, the Courts, the Office of Violence Prevention, 
the great Delaware Valley Intelligence Center, the DIVIC, and collectively on a week-to-week basis, we discuss these individuals to really be able to figure out what are their social dynamics, their family history, the things that have taken place within the home, have any of them have any involvement within the criminal justice system. And from there, we gear up to conduct what's called the GVI customer notification uh-huh. message. GVI, again, is not a social service strategy. It's a law enforcement strategy. Like the goal is ultimately to knock on these brothers' doors with hopes they can get their lives together. Our message contains three components. There's a consequence message, a community message, and a social service message. So our police partners and our representative from the district attorney's office will relate the consequence message. Basically, we know who you are. We know who you're associated with. We know what you or those that you surround yourself around are involved. And if the gun violence continue to persist, these are the consequences that shall follow. Our community members, which are made up of individuals who are credible messengers, these are individuals who share the limits and risks of being a part of a group. They share their personal story. And then we also have moms who have lost children to gun violence. They share their despair. They share their grief with these individuals with hopes that their parents does not have to experience the pain that they're experiencing. And then we also have social service providers. So we can't go to engage a young person without having resources. So the Office of Violence Prevention, we do a good job with making sure that we had those social service providers a part of those teams to be able to offer those services. But within GVI, typically we would deliver a message in a public forum. So we would basically invite these individuals to be within one space to deliver the GVI message. And all the partners would have a representative who would deliver that message. But because of COVID, we had to make some changes. Like this apocalypse hit is hard in the city of Philadelphia. So what we had to do was obviously with restrictions, we couldn't get approved to have X amount of people within one space. We just couldn't sit around and not do nothing. So we needed to be a part of this fight. I think ultimately for me, for us, we wanted to just get out there and do what we can to be able to be a part of the many organizations and people who are really out there trying to combat gun violence. So we switched it up. And instead of inviting these individuals within one space, we would take the message to their doorstep. And I know some people might say you got to work harder, not smarter, but we knew that we needed to work harder to be able to at least try to stop this current tide, this current trend of gun violence. And we go out there every Saturday between 930 and 1, and we're knocking on doors. We're engaging young people as best as possible. And we're really just trying to do our due diligence to really get over here to this curve. So the problem you're trying to solve is working with these young folks who are a group involved to get them into some positive activity and kind of recreate a sense of belonging in a positive space. How will you know what you're doing is working? Well, I think ultimately, unfortunately, a lot of people that we come across are non-service seekers, meaning these are individuals who aren't interested in nothing that you have to offer. But I think for us, our biggest mission is, can we keep you alive? So that's that first step is, can I keep you alive? And I think that's where the beauty and the joy comes with this work is just being able to keep these young brothers alive and keep them out of prison. So if I can keep you out of prison, if I can keep you alive long enough, that's the first step. And I think secondly, just being able to continue to build that rapport and just letting them know that we're here. And for a lot of guys, you know, for example, we might engage a young brother in November and he might not be interested in nothing that we're offering. He might want to hear shit that we're saying. But ultimately, it comes down to if he comes back to me today in March, does the offer still stay? Yeah, and it does. And it does. And it does. And I think for us, we want them to know that we're serious about what we're saying. So if you go out there and you commit a shooting, there will be consequences that shall follow. But if you want help, that same seriousness that comes with possibly our law enforcement partners prosecuting you, we are just as committed to helping you. Ultimately, our goal is to help you before possibly having to put you in custody or behind bars. So that's why we go out there every week 
Sometimes we have to go out there more than once to talk to a young person because we really want the message to hone in. We want our message ultimately to act as a deterrent for future crime. This is their forward warning. No one, when I was coming up, never gave me a warning. Like, hey, if you do this, this is gonna happen. And that's what we want our message to be. This idea that this is what will take place and we're serious about what we're doing, but we're also serious about helping as well. When I think about the young people that some of them are grown as men, when I think about the folks in which you're engaging, like why did they, in your opinion, why is this a problem? Why did they even get engaged in this? Why is it that you have to take these trips to the house or do the call-in? What's going on in the minds of these young people? Oh, that's, that's, that's such a great question. And I always tell people, get out there, knock on some doors, go to these corners. And then from there for us, our advantage is when we go to the door, and we're able to see the first the dynamic of their home. Yeah. A lot of the time when we go out there, mom and dad will invite us into the house. And from just having conversations with mom, you just be surprised and just the story, right? We had a mom who our mom was just sharing her story of losing a child. And the mom told us, she said, I'm sorry, mom, but I lost two of my sons. So violence is something that is an unfortunate pattern that a lot of these families experience. So going into the homes and really understanding the dynamics that they're under, it really gives me a perspective as to why it makes sense that this is a path that this young man went on. We have a young man, full disclosure, he basically inherited the conflict of his father. His father had associations. His father, unfortunately, is away doing basically life in prison. But now because he's a junior, those same issues that his father had on the streets, they come on his. And so I think the home dynamics, once you get into the home and you really see some of the things that's really transpiring that's taking place, like you see an unfortunate pattern has really putting these young brothers and sisters on this unfortunate trajectory. When you go into the homes, I would imagine, just based on my experience, signs of kind of generational trauma, signs of depression that may exist in a home. How are you talking to these folks about that not necessarily being okay to be normal? How are you having those conversations, you and the case managers that work with you? First and foremost, when we go out to the home, our mission is even if we go there and a the young man is not there, we still deliver the message to mom, dad, whoever is in the influencer in this person's life, they will receive the message. And we also let them know that the services that we're offering is not just subjected to him, it's for everyone in the house. So when we are in these homes and we're having these conversations with mom, with dad, with the brothers, with sisters, my first question is, how can I help you? What is your distinct need? That's always my first question. What are some of the needs of the household? Last Friday, I dropped off $50 worth of groceries to a mom. Her son said he was fine, but mom called me and said, I'm not. And Mom, I can help you. And I think the power of being able to do that, the power of being asking, being able to ask mom, hey, how can I help you? And to be able to follow up on that, figure out what are the existing voids. And then from there, just, just chopping it all up and just trying to do our due diligence to help them out. Why is this work important to you? Uh, <laughs> I think for me, just that lived experience. For me, my uh, young black brother grew up in Germantown my whole entire life and just having that lived experience. Like for me, before doing this work, I did a different path. Yeah. And that path, based upon my associations, got me in trouble. So when I was out there doing what I was doing, I was getting away with it. But the moment I started hanging out with a certain crowd, what they did became my trouble. Mm -hmm. And I never forget going out one night, just jumping in the car with my friends, and I didn't realize like that was gonna be the last night that I ever saw my mother. And also not realizing that was gonna be the last time my family saw me in three years. Mm -hmm. So all it took for me was understanding, like jumping in the backseat of my friend's car, I'll be gone for three years. And the next time I would see my mother would be in prison scrubs. And when I became a free man, my mother died a week before I was released from custody. You know, so for me, 
having that lived experience, being incarcerated, having two felonies on my jacket. So when I go out there, I know when a young brother tell me, man, I can't find a job because of my background. I've been there. When a young person say, man, I try to get this apartment, but the rules are declining because of my background. I know what it's like. For a period, my family had to write it up for me. And so having that experience and understanding the process of elimination, understanding the process of what change, how you have to implement change in your life. So when I was released from custody after losing my mom, going to all these different reentry programs just to, just to do my best to help myself, I realized that I needed help and I ain't had answers. And being okay with the fact that I didn't have answers. So going to these different programs, going to ROS, which is now office reentry partnerships, I was able to meet some people that really helped me. And then from there, I just swallowed my pride, found me a job as a butcher. In a local supermarket, I'm thinking to myself, like, man, you know, I want my friends see me working here, but I ain't give a hell. And I ain't give yeah. a shit. I needed to do what I needed to do to save my life. And I, I never forget, like, the first day I was out, I went down Community College of Philadelphia. I said, can I speak to an advisor? And they said, can we help you? I said, I'm here. I want to change my life. I want to figure something out. want to do something different. Help me. And I didn't know what the hell I was down there for, but I just knew I was down there. I know y'all. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like I talked talk to my homie. My homie said, look, just go down south. Just go jump on the train and just go downtown. Figure it out. That's what I did. Jumped on that sub and I just got off at Spring Garden. And from there, being able to find a job, one, being able to find an employer who's willing to give, give me a chance. And then being able to go to being in an environment like CCP that really just gave me that positive full mentorship, yeah. that positive environment. It took me out of my element, took me out of my community. And then from there, I just became this career student. Went from community college to Tip University, got my bachelor's, then stayed and got my master's. And just, just seeing the process and the steps that it took for me to get there, I always knew that I wanted to be an agent of change. I always knew that I wanted to put myself in a position to be able to get back to my community, pay for it as well. But, so, right, but gotta eat. Exactly, right? But gotta eat. I wanted my career to be about this and just meeting the right people really just put me in this position to be able to save lives. And that's what I wanted to do. Couple questions. One, were you engaged with the Center for Black Male Engagement at, or the Center for Male Engagement at CCP? I was. You were. All right. So you I was. <laughs> we've never talked about that. I was. Talk to my people. If you was a young black brother going to community college, you connect with them. That is an incredible network and it has been a network that has provided me with so many unique elements in my trajectory. I encourage all brothers to go that path. Go there. Go there. Let's just assume somebody who's never met anybody like you is listening to this podcast and they run across a young brother. What do you want them to know about you 10 years ago? 10 years ago, I want these young brothers to understand and know that change is not hard. It's not. It requires sacrifice. But today, and even then, I had this belief that 18 years down the line, everything that I was going to be doing would be well worth it. And so at 23, and that'll be two years, two years ago, uh, I, that's a little disclaimer. At 23, I understood that I needed and made the necessary sacrifices in my life. My past can no longer define me. I got tired at that time going to job interviews and not getting hired because of my record, knowing that my heart was pure, knowing that I made mistakes and ultimately I did my time, I did my sentence. So that should no longer be a reflection of myself. So at that age, I understood that. I went to a freaking convenience store to try to get a job, and he said no. So just seeing, like, you can go to any entity and get declined. I no longer wanted that to be a part of my future, and I was going to do whatever I could 
to make sure that down the line that the work that I was putting in was going to help me out. So I think for these young brothers, if they saw me back then, or they would see me out there tussling, bustling, just doing my due diligence to make sure that I did right by myself. And I think that's really what it stands for. What would you say to somebody who didn't give you a chance? I feel bad for one, <laughs> but I thanked them because, and I'll tell you this, I got into this work because it was time for me to do an internship when I was in, at community college. When my background pulled up, they declined me. So I had to basically succumb to whatever was left, which wasn't much. And the last thing that was available was the Office of Reentry Partnerships. Mm. Not knowing that I was a previous client there as well. So from there, I was able to build unique connections down the line when I graduated. So I thanked them because ultimately the individual that said no, all it did was it just kept me motivated, kept me inspired, just keep going. And it has put me in this position today. And if those individuals would have said yes, I wouldn't be doing the work that I do today. And I could tell you, I love what I do. And so those that said no, I thank them because I don't think I will be in this seat or be doing the work that I'm doing. Do you think that you are the norm or are you different? No, I'm not the norm. You're a rock star to me. I'm not the norm. I'll tell you, even when it comes down to this strategy, this strategy is not for everyone. Let's be very frank. There's a lot of elements about the strategy where you have a lot of police partners who don't really feel that this community component is critical or the solution to stopping gun violence. You have a lot of community members who are not willing to work side by side with police and we have to respect their opinion, which yes. is very violent. You know, we have to respect both sides of the component. But ultimately, I think to do this work, you have to have a level of enthusiasm. But I do know that for this strategy, a lot of people come in and be a bit more pessimistic about it. So it requires me to help reel them in but no, I do think that we need more individuals to be a part of this who are enthusiastic about the work because trying to combat gun violence or trying to save lives requires a lot of energy, requires a lot of attention to detail and just commitment. And I think we definitely could use a lot more of it. What do you think is missing in the work that we do? I think we need more more of our community partners to be a part of what we're doing. Being okay to have the tough conversations, right? understanding that when we have these events, we don't want to see the same people. We want to see more of the community members. We're here, and I think we've been doing a really good job with being as visible as possible, but just having more people in the communities who are involved. I think at times what happens is that once violence creeps up and is knocking at your door, that's when you get involved. So if it has never impacted you, or if you don't know anyone close to you that has been impacted by gun violence, you tend to ignore it until it, your child or someone that you love has yeah. become a victim and kudos to those who are involved in general. But I think if we can get more people to really understand that lives are being lost, and people know that, but understand that, hey, like there are ways for you to get involved. There are ways for you to really support those that are doing the work. And I think that will really help us out a whole lot. One of the things that I've talked about in this work, when it particularly comes to young men, that are lost either to incarceration or to a bullet, what are we missing out? Is there some point in joy or blessing we could have gotten from their brain and their existence that we no longer have access to because we've either locked them away and thrown away the key or something took them out? And I think the more that we understand that there's a sense of loss when we lose every young person to violence for all of us, or there's something that we may miss out on, then I think that it would behoove us to, to look at the lives and humanity of young people who are caught up in this game a lot differently. And I don't see that enough. I don't see the humanity imparted upon those who are on either side of the gun in a way that it should be. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Definitely. We visited a home and the mom, 
her 11 year old daughter, she was grazed and she was hit in the shoulder. And there was several city partners who came to the home to check up on them. But she just said the community, people just come around, but no one really reached out to see if she really needed help outside of those that came to the door. And I think that right there to me is an 11 year old girl in our community was basically struck by a bullet. And didn't feel like anybody could exactly. I'll cry, I'll be damned if my child gets shot, I might shut the whole block down. <laughs> so I think just yeah. understanding and it just, we have children who are being victims of gun violence and you would think that would be the thing that we basically have all members of the community just coming out and just ready to go. So I think there are a lot of people who are involved who are doing it. They are. They are. They are great, great work, and we're not discrediting them. We just really hope to see more individuals from the community who normally don't come out. Come on out. Help us out. This is one of the things I wanted to ask is like that call of action. So if folks wanted to come out, ideally, how would people engage? Definitely. For us, I always tell people we have credible messengers. We yeah. have community members who are a part of our teams. Everyone has a unique story. Everyone has something to share, and we can also learn from everyone. So I always tell people, like, there's a seat in our van. There's a space in our team. I always tell people all the time, if you want to get out there and engage these young people, I could take you to them. But also for those that don't feel too comfortable working alongside law enforcement, my team is also out there every Tuesday and Thursday. So if you wish to tag along to be a part of those teams, again, engaging these young brothers, talking to them, being within their homes, seeing their families' dynamics, we're able to do that as well. So I think GVI offers a great space, a great component, and an open invitation for anyone to be involved while we're done. What's your biggest challenge in this work? If you say, this is what I'm challenged with day to day. Trying to not succumb to hopelessness because ultimately I love all of my participants and clients that I work with. And even those that don't want to help, there's still a sense of connection that I build with them because anyone that we come across, they are not mandated to speak with us. They can shut their door. They can say, no, I'm not interested. And we just go about our day. But I can tell you, we've done, since we started GVI in late 2020, we've done over 1,300 individualized engagements. And we haven't had anyone shut the door on us. The curiosity of, like, why is the DA, cops, moms, why would you be at my door, right? You want answers. And the curiosity and the need for answers send the real people in. And just a young brother giving me 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes of his time I appreciate that. And even within those 10, 15, 20 minutes when we're having a conversation and I'm trying and I'm just pouring my heart out to this young brother with hopes of saving his life, I take him in and, and I just want to hug him. You know, one of my moms, whenever she go out there, she hug all our clients. It's cultural, one. Right. And two, there's this sense of being able to love you in spite of what has happened to you or what you have done. Being able to accept you and support you in this path that you're taking right. now and allow for you to even make mistakes in this. But what does it look like to accept you wholeheartedly, regardless of who you came to me as? And so that has been one of the things that I really focus on when I connect with the folks from Power Corps and particularly it's like where I've gleaned a lot of my mentees from look I'm catching you at the tail end of your worst time and it is my responsibility to show you love in that auntie or mommy mode because some of the kids are young enough to be my kids but if you're not what does it look like to see success in me in my position and in my trajectory but also see acceptance because I know I can pull you with me and for us when we're out there talking to them you just See, a lot of these guys are good guys. A lot of these guys, like, no, they have it. Like, they are actually equipped with the tools to be great, to be successful, to be able to inspire others. A lot of these young brothers are leaders. 
and they just don't know. And when I'm out there talking with them, kids, I'm coming to my house, have a seat at my table. And to grant me that access for me is forever life changing. It grants me a perspective and a part of me wants to protect you. The hard part of this work is 10, 12, 15 days from now to get an email. We get them. And to see a name of a young brother that I engaged and I had a great engagement with, spoke to mom, spoke to dad, spoke to little brothers, and to see him now become a statistic and that we have to report out on, it, it hits you differently. A party feel as if you're not doing enough. So just trying not to come to that understanding that, did we do enough? Should I just follow up on a phone call? Should I have additional phone calls? Should I made another visit? No, you start asking yourself those questions. And even while I'm on this podcast talking about it, I'm still asking myself, like, no, did, did I do enough? So I think for me, just trying not to come to that and understanding that ultimately you did the best you could. And then there are also others whose lives you may have changed as yeah. well. So just always being reminded of that. And I think a unique story is that one of our moms who are now a team member, we visited her home to engage her son. And he wasn't home. But mom was just super stoked about us being there because he just been doing some bullshit and she just no longer has a hold on him. But she just felt like all these individuals who are at my door, you guys can let my son know how serious his actions, how serious thing, this thing is. So she took a picture of the team. She called her mom. It was a pretty cool, unique encounter. From there, she called me two days later and said, hey, Dion, I spoke to my son. He's going to call you Monday at this time. Don't set nothing on your schedule. Just wait for his phone call. Young brother texted me, said, hey, how you doing, Mr. Dion? I'm really interested in what you have to offer. Can we meet on Monday? I said, no problem. Monday comes. He has to postpone because he has to go pick up his child. So he right. said, tomorrow. I said, not a problem. The young brother was dead that night. Mom, she now took some time. Where She now is one of our team members. And she goes out and she shares the story about how her son was one of our candidates. And she's also one of the moms that's going to be speaking on our next call as well, her and her husband. These are just the encounters that we have, and we just really hope to stop it. If there's a mom or a dad listening and they're at their wits end, what's the message you would give them? I think first and foremost is that if they're in your home, you know, they're still your baby, they're still your child. So, like, you have every right to go into their closet to lift up that bed see what's underneath there, question them based upon who they're hanging around. Mm -hmm. But because I could tell you a lot of my moms, they'll tell you that they stopped that. Mm -hmm. And then the moment they stopped doing that and they start trusting that, you know what, he has it figured out, that's when the child became off the rails and then they lost them. So maintaining that nosiness, mm -hmm. maintaining that curiosity as to what your child this is, my house. this is your house, this is your home, and also know that there's hope. And I think that's one of the most important things is that if someone's listening, just to know that there are individuals out in the city, in the community, who will come to your home, who will sit down with your son. If your son is on X and X intersection, it, there are people out there who will go to the intersection to engage your child as well. So just to know that there are individuals who want to support you. We don't want your child to be a victim and or a perpetrator, so to speak. And we really want to be able to kind of help you out as best as possible. And when you go to the families and they ask for stuff, you talked about one family needed groceries. Like, what are some of the things folks need that we may not even realize? So I can tell you employment is always a big deal, but also restitution. A lot of these individuals who owe the courts some restitution calls and on probation, they need to pay a certain payment. If they don't, they might have to violate. So we've had clients where you know, we've offered to even pay their restitution calls. And in doing so, we got connected with this employer. Right. So you can be able to step in and cover the remaining bonds, so to speak. So for us, 
we want to be able to help you, but we still want to choose to be able to be responsible enough to take care of yourself and take care of your responsibilities. But housing relocation, housing is always a big thing for a lot of our families. You have a lot of these young brothers who reside in communities where their lives are on the line. Educational attainment, and that can be from mom, dad, or to the person that we're there to see. So documentation, sometimes it could just be, I don't have my birth certificate or my social security card. So if you don't have one or the other, it means getting the next one hard. It's just a massive array of different things that a lot of our families need, but employment is always the most request service from the families that we're serving. And so we have a partnership with TVI, with a Center for Employment yes. Opportunities, and so we're able to at least provide some sort of transitional placement for a lot of the participants in the program so they can get a couple dollars in their pockets. And listen, if it's a young brother listening, if you need a job, some easy money in your pockets, do not hesitate to reach out to me. I do not turn my back on anyone. You don't just have to be a GVI participant. As long as you're a young brother who resides within the city of Philadelphia, we can have you working within 48 to 72 hours. Two to three days, right? Because exactly. uh, money in your pocket. Exactly. Tell me about a success story. And I know the GVI has only been up for about a year and a half. And so we're seeing early signs of success. But what's a heartwarming story for you that has come out of this? So we had a fellow police officer who was on our team. Man, he was very pessimistic about what we were doing. He looked on a the list. There was a young man on the list, and the actual cop saved the young man's life. So the cop, in his mind, he just kept telling himself, this kid is not going to see me. This kid is not going to see me because after I saved his life, the next day when he went home, I had to apprehend him. So in his mind, this thing's not going to work. I don't need to see this kid. I'm the last person this kid wants to see. And I'm like, you know what? We have a job to do, and you have to give this young man a chance. So we go to the home, and we deliver the message. And the young man just kept staring at the officer. And the officer staring at the young man. So it's like some unique tension between the two. So I, I, I see the young man, and I said to the officer, come step forward. And I said, young man, I see you constantly staring at him. Is there something that you want to say to him? And then the young man looked at the officer. He said, listen, I want to thank you for saving my life. He said, if it wasn't for you, my kids won't have a father. And he said, I never got a chance to tell you that. I know the next day you had to apprehend me, but I just want to say thank you. And the officer was just, he kind of got choked up because in his mind, he's thinking to himself. This yeah, kid, worked himself up. Yeah, like I worked himself up and thinking that this kid will hate me or because of the community and police relations that, you know, obviously I'm the last person he wants to see. But to understand that even in the work that we're doing, that there's still such a unique human aspect to it. And I think that's what makes the work that we do so much fun, so exciting, because it, it grants our fellow officers to have this forum to be able to let these individuals know, hey, we don't want to lock you up. We don't want to pick you off the ground. We're going to do our job. But it also allows our candidates to be able to share how they feel. So to be able to have this canvas and everyone could just be free with how they feel and have these conversations, have these discussions, it just makes the work so wholesome. And obviously, if you save someone's life and then in the future you see them and you see them doing well, right. you go home and you just feel encouraged knowing, you know what, I'm going to go, if somebody walking across the street and you're about to hit by a car, I'm going to go see what you want to save anyone. And I think that's what some of the work that we're doing as well. And there's other success stories. This is something that happened last weekend. His reset is fresh, and I definitely want to share it. My advice to the cop would be, like, don't suffer twice. And we do that a lot. And I speak from the Black experience. We will try and navigate a situation before we even get to the edge of the water. Like, we're already trying to chart out 
all the paths we can take. And oftentimes we suffer twice because we're stressing out about something. And then we're thinking the worst case scenario and we don't ever get to the worst case scenario. Something else happens that's a different stressor. But I just find that oftentimes we like go into this deep, dark hole of the worst case scenario and we never have to go there. So don't suffer twice. I think also no matter what the person has done, no matter who this person is associated with, there's still a uniqueness to this individual. It doesn't make them a bad person. And I think that whole encounter, it allowed the officer to see, hey, you did lock me up, but you also saved my life. And I thank you for that. So it was such a unique encounter. And I love to be able to revisit it as often as possible. <laughs> You've given me the joy of the work that you do and some of the downsides of the work you do. One, you're the leader of the team. How do you keep your team motivated? You're in a growth stage too. So like, if this is work you want to do, <laughs> also reach out to Dion. Because we're looking for case managers and peer specialists, but... How do you keep your team motivated? I've long you have to lead by example. I think for me, I had a big learning curve because yes. before this role, I was never in a leadership position. In this process, I'm still learning. I'm still growing. I'm learning about myself. I'm learning about the work, more things, learning from you, learning from so many others. But I've learned to understand that you have to set an example, right? So if I'm out there and my energy's low, the team energy is going to be low. So that so at times, my team needs that coach. It needs that motivational speaker to keep them encouraged. I had to make them those necessary sacrifices for the greater good. And when we're out there and we make that one contact with that young man, it just highlights the day. But I try to make sure that those highlights start the moment we meet at the at a precinct from there, just, just coming with that energy. And I think it hasn't wavered yet. I don't plan on that. And I try to make sure to take care of myself with the proper self-care, but just making sure that we had the proper leadership, keep them afloat and keep them going. What does self-care look like for you? Oh, man. I have two sons. I have a newborn. But being a father, mm. I love being a father. I love my sons. Someone that I'm obsessed with being a father, and I'm also obsessed with my boys. So just on a downtime, just enjoying my family. I'm an avid basketball fan. I think I definitely, definitely. So I'm a big basketball guy. And I always encourage people, with this work, you have to find things outside of the job that will keep you afloat because, again, a lot of these things will go home. When you get those emails eight, nine o'clock at night of a shooting, you're going to look at it and hope and pray is not someone that you're working with. So again, you have to make sure that life outside of the job is definitely intact. And I think my family and my joy for the sport of basketball keeps me grounded with other things. What are you most hopeful for in this work? What do you think the future holds or what do you hope the future holds? I think for me, I'm just hopeful that we will be able to save as many lives as possible. I think if we weren't doing what we've been doing, the murder rate will probably be higher. Homicide rate, rather. I think about that. I think about the amount of people that we've been able to connect to an employer. I think about the amount of people that, you know, after we've engaged them and we work with them, that haven't become a victim or haven't become a perpetrator or are not incarcerated. I think about those individuals and knowing their history and knowing where they're at now. So I'm hopeful that if we keep doing it, keep doing more of it, continue to be intentional, continue to be pure of heart, that we'll be able to save more lives and make sure that we have a limited amount of moms who are participating in these things because their children are alive and well. If Dion needed to ask for help or support, what type of support do you think for me to be able to diversify my employment front? Because I also understand that the connections that I may have is not suitable for everyone. And even though a young brother may not have a job, it doesn't mean that he's going to say yes to anything. Well, you didn't hear me talk about that. One of the things that you talk about the job piece, folks think just because I give you a job at whatever supermarket, whatever grocery store, whatever drugstore, whatever field, you should just be grateful. There is no concept of folks having 
purpose. Just because I committed a crime doesn't mean I can't find purpose in my life. Is that, there we go. There we go. That is the part that really drives me crazy because you've heard me say this. Exactly. I'm not trying to create another generation of field hands. If my grandfather, who was born in the early 1900s, had enough hope for his grandbaby born in the 1970s, I can't have less hope for the kids born in the 2000s. Right, right. And why we think that's okay, especially black folk, drives me batshit crazy. <laughs> and I think another thing about it is that just because a young brother reside in a certain community or associate with this group, it doesn't mean he don't have a job. A lot of these individuals that we come across, I can tell you, half of these guys are gainfully employed. And not on the streets. At all. They get in W-9s and whatnot. Exactly. Like, you got some of these guys who go to the one kid house, well, oh, I'm not home on the weekends because I'm in Iowa. I'm driving trucks. So that's what makes this era so unique of gun violence because obviously we have younger kids involved, but you also have individuals involved who got their shit together. We had a kid who was enrolled in college and on breaks coming home and, and be involved in some bullshit. What is that about? I have my theory. I have theories as well. I always tell people what makes this work hard is that once a body drops, once a life is lost, it's hard to tell a young brother, man, don't seek revenge for your brother. Don't yeah. seek revenge for your cousin. It becomes very challenging because you can move past it, but you still, a part of you still feel like I need to do right by my brother and revenge him. I need to do right by my best friend. So I'm really seeing a lot of guys out here who are just being very reactive to an incident, to a situation, and which kind of just, now we just have this continuum of gun violence. My theory <laughs> is it's about a sense of belonging. And so in my theory is like, you've got cats who drive trucks or in college, maybe they're in Millersville, I don't know. But then they come home and these are the dudes I hang out with. These are the folks that have my back. And so if these folks have my back, why are you telling me to turn my back on the people who've always looked out for me? It's that sense of belonging. And so how do we turn why they belong together around? And that's the work that I'm trying to get at. Yeah, y'all are in these streets because y'all are together and y'all have each other's back in the street. But what if we put you all in a classroom or put you all in an office? Or Why can't that be your sensible line? Eric, I can tell you this. A lot of the guys that want help, I can't just work with them. I have to work with their homie. I have guys like, hey, set up, set up with orientation. CEO call me, Dion, we have a problem. What's the problem? John Doe, he arrived on time, but he brought four of his homies. So I'm like, okay. He said, yeah, you said if I can, if I need a job or anyone else needed a job. I'm like, that's what I meant. Let me know. So then, exactly. So then from there, I'm writing referrals. And again, I don't turn back for anyone. And I also understand that with these group dynamics, you no, know, these guys are embedded to their peers. They view their homie as a blood brother. So I've learned that in, in order to be the real human, I got to rule in the rest as well. So being able to not just work with one individual in that group, but to be able to find who's that leader, who's that alpha, who's that guy that can bring them all in. And once we're able to get him, that's when the, kind of the pieces start falling in. But it, I see it all the time, and I think it there is definitely on the right bar. It's almost like the unintended consequences, and I hate to use this term because it's a negative term, but like the net widening. Right. You're widening the net and making the bigger net for the greater good. And so it's not like you're net widening and putting them, cycling them into a system, but how do you widen the net and cycle them and pull them out of the system is this catch the big fish, the little fish, and all the fish and pull them out. And that's the work. I think that's the work of the work you're doing. I think that's the work that our reentry community has to do in terms of reducing recidivism. That's the work that we got to do around reducing the time that people are on supervision. One of the things that I really want to work on is like that restitution piece. If I can't get a job, how are you going to charge me more money to make restitution for whatever crime I committed? It's a cycle that is in no way helpful 
to folks getting out of the game. We had a, a young person who, obviously because they weren't working, they couldn't pay it. And in their county that they were under supervision, they were required to make a payment every month. But they're not working, so they're unable to do so. Obviously, their bonds accumulated. And if they didn't pay it, the past balance, they would be subjected to a violation and be placed in custody for three months. And the balance was about 250 I said, I'll pay it. I spoke to my client probation officer. I'm like, how much is it? 250 I'm like, I will pay it right now and just get reimbursed for it later. And that's what I did. I just I covered the cost because in my mind, it's not worth this individual to spend three months in custody for a $250 bill. And that's a thing I don't think folks are really aware of. It's you've gone to court, you've done the time, and now you've got to pay money back. And you can't get a job. It becomes very difficult. It's insane. <laughs> I say this in government a lot. We exhibit the definition of insanity. We keep doing things the same way, expecting a different result. And we do it in different ways. It's, it's we do it in how we document our progress and work. We do it in how we think we're being restorative in systems. We do it in how we quote unquote innovate in government. We gotta change, <laughs> period. Here you point blank. Full stop. Full stop. Are there questions you have just around where this work goes? Are there things that you want to know? I think, honestly, the violence and the meaning behind it or what's causing it is going to continue to change. And I think just continue to just try and stay ahead of it. Because I think the social media wave, I think a lot of us didn't know how impactful it would be because it came so fast. It did. It's so for folks who don't understand that, can you break that down? Yeah. So what's also happening is a lot of these individuals will go on social media and post their location. Basically, that location is to inform their ops, those who are in opposition with that this is where they're at. I dare you to pull up. And we're seeing that right there is basically a, a challenge to another man's manhood and the probability that they're going to pull up. Is likely. And then when it comes into that sense of belonging, you may have individuals say, hey, you need to do this. You need to respond this way because ultimately you disrespecting all of us. So we're seeing we've had individuals after they commit a shooting or commit a crime, they go on social media, post like little sub messages and not knowing that the police are watching. Like literally like this unit or social media activity. And a lot of these brothers are right on state road because of an Instagram story. So. I think the surge of social media is something that we're all still learning. So obviously, it's hard to be able to view and analyze one's posts or messaging in real time. Right. You know, unless you're just on there, so to speak, which requires more resources, more women and manpower. But I think for me, my question just comes down to just trying to find what are some new innovative ways for us to continue to stay within the now and not lose sight of what's going to be the next messaging or the next meaning that like buffers up the violence as well. It's fascinating to see just how social media has played a part in driving violence or even a tool. We're trying to figure out ways to leverage that tool in different ways, and we ain't figured it out yet. I'm going to try. Because because it's such a public forum, so anyone can access it. So to be able to step in or discourage individuals to do that, it's a real tricky process. So I always tell my participants, stay off of social media. I'm posting no bullshit and it's gonna be all right. I'll tell them all. Some of the girls that I've mentored, I see them all on Instagram. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> I'd be in the DMs like, sit down somewhere, take that down. Chill out. What are you doing? And because they just don't realize, like, one, Instagram made for all your emotions. 
it's a tool, but it shouldn't be like the your pulpit. And that's the part that scares me about young folks who are utilizing Instagram, even old folks, because I swear to God, if I see some middle-aged person's business on Instagram one more time, and that's the thing, I would love for us to get back to a point in a situation where we can connect in real life and not succumb to the whims of social media as it relates to how we feel accepted. And I think it comes with trying to depict this image or life that we would love to live, that some may feel like they're not living in real life. So when you go on social media, a lot of these individuals are just on there posting stuff, pretending to be something that they aren't. And I think it has led to this obsession that for a lot of these guys has become violent. So you got a lot of these guys who aren't really equipped to do what they say they are doing. Ultimately, when it comes down to within the city of Philadelphia, when we think about victims and perpetrators, a lot of victims of gun violence know their perpetrator. About 85, close to 90%. Obviously, it's unfortunate when it's an uh, innocent bystander, but the probability of you knowing your perpetrator is more likely. It's very high. A lot of these individuals, if you really want to stay out the way and just focus on yourself, you're able to really do that. But if you want trouble and you're out there throwing these sub messages to the to your alleged ops, that's when things become very tricky and we're really starting to see that the violence and the uptick in violence really increases. You said something earlier around masculinity. What is the perception of masculinity in these streets? What is the definition of masculinity that you think these young cats think it? It always stems from money, power, and respect. And that's been a while, but I think also... When was the last time you really saw some brothers out on the streets just getting down, just rumbling? You don't really see too many fights. When I graduated high school in 2007, we was doing a lot of fighting, but a lot of these kids today aren't doing a lot of fighting. And I think... When it comes down to that masculine components, it's yeah. a big deal. Like, even when we start talking about toxic masculinity. So the idea of what it means to be a man for them is based upon pulling up. Back in the play of your homie, the definition of it has changed. You know, a, a good brother always says that the streets has changed. So as the streets change, the idea and the definition of what it means to be a man within these streets has changed as well. And we're really starting to see these guys just resort because anyone can pull a trigger. But for a lot of these guys, they think pulling a trigger you know, is like the ultimate test to be a man. And it's really putting our young brothers on a real bad swing. That's a hard piece for me. I was on a panel that we were talking about the misnomer of Black Girl Magic and what it really means to be a Black woman in the space and be treated as though you're magical when all you've done is persevere. And one of the things that I said was like, Oftentimes, Black women, strong Black women in particular, just need a soft place to land. And I feel like our brothers need the same thing. And I also want us to get out of these gender norms or these conversations that are gendered don't give us space to expand who we are. And so if we say, this is what a woman's supposed to do. Like, sometimes I'm the crazy one that's going to run into a fire. And and that has happened to me even recently where there was an altercation. I'm going in to help undo it. And folks are like, ma'am, I'm like, don't man me. Like, we all in this together. I ran into the fire. And let's set a gendered role. And what do we do if we unpack the world a little bit differently and say, there are not things that define your manhood. Can we allow you to do that for yourself? And I wonder how that will resonate with a younger generation. I think a lot of conversations I have with my guys is encourage them to understand that it's okay for you to not be okay. It's okay for you to say that you don't have the answers. And I know for me, it took a lot for me to admit 
that I needed help, right? I would not be where I'm at today if I didn't take the time to tell myself and understand that I don't have the answers and that I need help. And with these young brothers to really be able to get them on a particular path, because at times you, you're dealing with decades and generations of someone telling them, this is, no, fix your posture, which is, those things are very essential, but basically this is how you talk, this is how you respond or if you don't do this, you're a punk. So once the peers start coming in and they start really trying to test them, a lot of these guys only have a, a positive male to tell them, this is how you talk, this is how you stand, this is how you respond, this is how you react. A lot of them getting more of the negative cues. And now we're just dealing with a whole cycle of young brothers who real emotional and sensitive. And no place to put it. At all. No place to put it. At all. And the other thing is they won't own that they are. It's like there's this disconnect with how you feel is a vulnerability. And it's okay to be and, 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 it's, a, it's okay to be a little sensitive. It's okay that the brother says something you don't like. That's fine. None of us do. Now, how do you respond? And a lot of these guys don't feel comfortable knowing that this man over here don't like me. Or this man over here hate me. You don't feel comfortable enough to be able to handle it differently so you want to pick up a gun and get rid of him. And that's what's really happening. You have a lot of these guys who just aren't comfortable knowing that another man who they may dislike is walking these streets. And to be able to help them to find different solutions, crisis intervention strategies to get through that. That's a whole lot of energy. That's a lot. Like, it's not a damn about how many people didn't like my little life. <laughs> a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. Because... Gun violence is not just one thing. It yeah. requires so many different elements. And I think, you know, we have our tactical meeting every week, and there's so many different city partners who do something totally different than the other. And they're all equally important. So it's really tough. It's tough, and, and there are a lot of parts to it, a lot of components of it. I think that we are all in a period in time where we feel a level of desperation because we're tired of hearing, seeing on the news that we're losing kids. But also, like, gun violence is a symptom. Oh, yes. It's a symptom. Yes, it's a deadly symptom, but I will never stop saying it's a symptom of generational divestment in poor communities, particularly black and brown ones. And until we are willing to do the long haul work, we're going to be back in the cycle every other decade. And so... Folks got to understand the work that you do, the work I do, we're triage. We're the emergency department. We're just here to stabilize and then move it into the system for some permanent remediation of the nonsense. And that has to come in forms of education, economic mobility, sense of hope and connectedness and belonging. I just got to keep people and keep them out of the system. Like, I need everybody else to do the other stuff and help me with the other stuff. <laughs> like, we are triage. If you have one thing folks would take away from this conversation about the work that you do, what would you want to impart upon folks? I think ultimately, obviously there's a need of enthusiasm for the work to be able to do it. But here's one thing I really want people to understand and know that there's a lot of people who really care and who are really busting their ass to save as many lives as possible. I'm proud to say I'm one of them. I, I love what I do. I love my work. And I think the GVI strategy, amongst other strategies, because this strategy is not the all and be all. It's one that can work in tandem with so many others. And I think ultimately the work that we've been doing for, for quite some time, we want to be part of the solution. We want to be a part of the fight. And I think once we keep expanding, keep doing more, try to engage as many young brothers as possible, ultimately our mission, our goal is to prevent in gun violence within the city of Philadelphia. So that's something I definitely want people to take away from it. All right. Thank you, Dion. <laughs> of course. It has been a pleasure talking to you today. Oh, man, always. Thank you for having me. No one is a lost cause. 
We have to have unyielding hope for the young men lured by the street culture, that they can find their way out with help. To learn more about GVI, email ovpinfo at philla.gov. Hey folks, Atwood here. Thanks for checking out I Know Your Name podcast. This podcast is made with production support from Philly Camp, executive produced by me, Erica Atwood, consulting producer, Tezra Wilkins, associate producer, Martise Coca-Clark, special thanks to Amari Avilos and Morris Hobson. To suggest a topic or for more information on anything you've heard, email us at podcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to rate and review. Join us next month for our next episode. See you then.